coming up in this podcast, house price fundamentals, positive or negative, Perth tech deals, hostile takeovers, election called, Leicester Art Prize and our special report on the legal sector. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast uh, and welcome Mark Beyer. Now, Mark, let's get past the big news of the week. The election was called. Um, what are some of the things we need to consider? Yep, May the 18th, so about five weeks of campaigning that we've all got to look forward to. Uh, look, I, th- I think it's uh, quite an interesting scenario that we've got. Um, my view, which I think might be a little bit different from yours, I, I think there's quite a marked contrast between the two major parties. Uh, Bill Shorten is advocating... I think some quite interventionist um, changes, um, some significant shifts in tax policy, a um, bit more regulation and involvement in the IR system. Um, so, you know, the, a bit of a, to me, compared to the past decade or so, I think a bit more variation. Um, certainly a hot one is taxes on property. And one of the articles we've got in our next edition is around the campaign that the Master Builders Association is running on that. They're going very hard. These are the proposed changes for negative gearing and capital gains tax, and they're very concerned about the impact that will have on the property market. Um, But that's a pretty key campaign promise for Labor, so I can't really see them shifting on that one. Mm. Um, But also, I mean, your column um, in the next edition, you've also explored some of the issues that you see and some of the differences. Yeah, and look, uh, just uh, I, I understand your comment about my views. I think what I'm trying to say in that column is that uh, for the general electorate, I, I think it's a bit, there's not a great deal of difference, which is, I think, why we see all this action on the fringes. Because, you know, when it comes to things like uh, their tax, general tax policy from the budget, we saw they're very much along the same lines. When we see, you know, even things like immigration policy, they're all kind of fairly similar. But I, again, it's really when you come down to who they serve and where you see those fundamental differences. And then getting to specific policy, you're right. I mean, I think negative gearing is a, is a good example. I mean, I, I just personally, I think it's probably quite a good policy. I think it's just bad timing, bad, bad, bad timing. And that's what the Master Builders Association is, you know, well, that's what they're highlighting. You've, you've got a negative, very negative property sector. Why take a large part of the potential investment market out of it? Um, the other ones that they, that I mentioned in my column, dividend imputation, uh, an easy win for Labor, they think, because they think they're selecting kind of the top end. They think they're banging people in probably Liberal electorates anyway, but of course they're trying to win some of those Liberal electorates. I think it's a bigger problem than they thought, and I just ideologically I have a fundamental issue with people paying tax on something uh, that's different from their own tax rate, which is why dividend imputation was brought in in the first place. Uh, but Labor also have a fundamental issue, I think, with self-managed super funds. And, you know, I think they'd like to see them gotten rid of, and this is just part of their chipping away at it. Uh, and the other issue, I think, that they're pushing the living wage, which is another way of saying pushing up the minimum wage, uh, is just challenging. It, it, it's this idea that People need to get paid, um, you know, a living wage. You know, they need enough to survive on. Well, um, the problem you've got there is that I, I think you push up the minimum wage and you end up pushing up the price of all the services 
that the people on the minimum wage also rely on and it become you know they, they lose that advantage they get so I don't see it as being a real pump primer for the economy like I think sometimes people hope and I think it's just a big blunt instrument that doesn't work very well plus I think the mechanisms are already there with family payments and all that sort of stuff to kind of to fix that stuff in a more targeted way there you go there's my bits and pieces on it there's plenty more in this election and I and I do share the concerns that you got that you know the Labor Party is around the union movement I think in the background that's really where I get concerned about that we see more union influence when unions don't really represent a lot of employees in this country. And when you talk about wages, you know, the big opportunity there is around getting more productivity and efficiency, and that's not a theme that we get dis- here discussed very much at all at the moment. No. Um, you know, there, were, there was a big push in prior decades around that theme, and that underpinned a lot of the growth that we have seen in wages yeah. and, and makes it affordable and sustainable. Um, but nice but is productivity now suddenly, you know, really when we see productivity, it's actually, that's just replacing people, isn't it? Haven't we got to that? Where it's it's almost, well, if, you know, how much more productive can people get? Is that the question around this? Oh, look, there's always been um, new technology and automation sure. replacing people. I'm, I'm one who does not um, uh, go for the alarmist concern about you know robotics and automation coming in and decimating swathes of people um, I just think it's a more of a continuum a long-term trend and there's opportunities there that you need to seize because if we don't seize them other countries will and will become less competitive well look I, I, I agree with you on that front I don't have a problem with that I, I just think I do see that some of those base jobs that are kind of typically required uh, you know people to do labour are in, are actually being phased out, and and those people you know people people who are in the horse and cart trade, I agree, found work in the automotive industry. I just wonder where people who've been building cars will end up finding work these days. Um, now, Mark, house prices are in the news again. Uh, some mixed views on the short to medium term outlook. Yeah, look, we had one uh, report that attracted a lot of interest from our readers, uh, Moody's Analytics. Uh, They do um, forecast every six months or so. And what's really striking is that in the past six months, they've become a lot more gloomy on the Western Australian residential property market. Um, In September last year, they were tipping a bit more softness in prices, um, stabilising this year and picking up in 2020. they're now saying that they've been disappointed by the economic developments in WA. They're now tipping prices in Perth to fall by 7.5% this year, mm. which is really quite dramatic when it comes on top of the very large falls that we've seen over the past few years. Yeah, right. So that's really quite concerning. Um, and then they're saying, you know, flat in 2020, finally a pickup in 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, but gee, that's still some way off. and. Interestingly, and at odds with Rewa, because Rewa's released a lot of data saying that in the more established inner suburbs, the western suburbs, those places relatively close to the city, they've actually been defying the slump and have already picked up, and yet Moody's are saying they're the ones facing the biggest fall this year. So a very contrary view. And it's also at odds with a report that came out from JLL, the property agency, uh, they are pointing to a whole range of economic indicators. Um, some forecasts from Deloitte Access, uh, 
trends on consumer spending, mining investment, resource exports, combined with um, the drop-off in housing supply because construction's been so weak, um, the recovery in the rental market, the low interest rates. So their view is um, now's a good time to get in. Um, and uh, you know, one of those principles of investing, um, buy low and sell high, but they're saying you can't always pick precisely the bottom of the market, but if you do want to, in, want to invest, you've got to get in while it's low. Yeah. So, you know, there's, so there's some, look, some pretty mixed opinions out there. Um, I think most people um, have been um, a bit dismayed about the extent to which Perth property values have continued to soften. Yeah, it's been, um, been amazing. Um, you know, very affordable market at the moment, um, and you know, there's some some reasonably positive indicators for the economy. But it's um, affordable if you've got confidence, right? And I think it's this is what I find very strange about this market that there. Are, I mean, I was at an event. We had a we had an event at KPMG last night for like the 40 under 40. Have, uh, you know, it's like a post post 40 under 40 award winning night. Um, chatting to one of the engineering firms there. Um, now. He's got a skill shortage. He can't get people. Speaking to other people during the week, same thing. Can't get people. Can't get people to do what they need, particularly up north. Now, is that because, you know, oh, A, 50,000 people left WA and that's part of the hole in this property market and part of the skill shortage? Or is it that people who are in a job in Perth aren't willing to take a job up north yet because they don't feel confident that it's going to last long enough? They're not going to, up, they're not going to take the upheaval. Same over east. People aren't going to come back if they see it's a short-term gig, uh, you know, because everybody got cut last time. So I, I'm, I'm intrigued by that, uh, and I don't know how much that is impacting things. And then you've got this other, an election issue around negative gearing. I mean, it's it's real, right? Is this a good time to buy? Because if you're an investor and you buy a house before January 1, you're in the negative gearing scheme, you're grandfathered in, and capital gains tax that goes with that, uh, the advantage of that. Or is this going to soften the house? Is the house market that soft? And is negative, negative, if you take negative gearing out of established homes, is that going to keep prices low? So there isn't the capital gains that you're looking for if you're a negative gearing investor. Uh, I'm wondering. So you know, I, I think we'll see a little ramp up or a rush of in, of negative gearing, negatively geared investors in the first uh, few months if Labor win because it makes sense in this market. If you think you're at the bottom, you think you can take some of those tax advantages, you may as well. Mm-hmm. But I'm just not sure how strong it's going to be. Fascinating, isn't it? It is. Um, now, Mark, let's uh, shift to something less macro. Uh, there are a couple of deals this week in the tech consulting and development sector. Uh, really interesting ones, actually. Tell us about them. So, look. Yeah, one of the themes we discuss a lot is around um, getting innovation into WA and, and supporting areas like the tech sector. And it's not just young pups with uh, clever new apps or uh, software that they're looking to develop. There's some very established people in Perth doing some really good things. And one of those people is a guy named Gary Back. Now, Gary's been around for quite a few years, started off with a business called Cube Consulting, and then out of that evolved his business INX Software. So it's all about it's a workforce management and logistics software. Gary's got to that point in life where he's looking for a big new shareholder to come in and uh, support the growth of the business. So he's attracted um, 
the well-known Melbourne dealmaker John Wiley. He's got a, a group called Tanara Capital. Um, their local office is run by Anna Shave, and Tanara has come in and bought a majority stake in INX. Mm. So to me, you know, a, a great little um, case study about innovation. Um, and then another example that's two younger people, uh, Melissa Bell and Corrie Sheepers, uh, they set up a business called The Terrace Initiative. Um, now, once again, in that software space, it's all around change management for people in the mining and transport sectors. Now, um, they've gone really well. They only set up the business six years ago. They've got 50 people, got offices across the country, and just been bought by Deloitte. Yeah. So, you know, when, um, you know, I guess a lot of people talk about we've been through this lull in the economy and, and things have been tough. Well, here's two great stories about people that have either established or built um, an existing business and now attracted um, new ownership into those businesses. Yeah, and, and in a sector that's thrived in this downturn, you know, technology, go back to productivity. <laughs> well, these are two examples, aren't yeah, they? Yeah. About providing the tools, the software, the consulting skills to help businesses operate more effectively. Yeah, no, no, it's, uh, well, they're great stories, Mark. And uh, and I was interested in Tanara because, you know, they, I think they came to Perth, gee, a year ago, 18 months ago, uh, set, up, set up office. And uh, I suspect this is the first deal of any significance that they've done in WA. I'm not... I think that's right, yeah, yes. Yeah, so, uh, you know, interesting because we haven't attracted, you know, Wiley Group, that kind of thing. Um, uh, we haven't seen that kind of venture capital. It's not easily brought over to the West from the East because obviously they've got plenty of opportunities over there and, and here's hard, it's hard to manage their investments. So it's great to see it. And having someone on the ground here makes all the difference. Yeah. So the fact that they do have someone here and they are talking about doing more deals... So um, another source of capital out there for growth businesses. Excellent. And I think saying John Wiley, when I said Wiley Group, I'm not thinking of the local Wiley Group, of course, which do do quite a lot of investment there. Um, now, Mark, uh, just sticking on this kind of deal-making kind of world, uh, again, a little bit more macro in a way. There, there are several major hostile takeovers underway. Um, we saw Crown Resorts being the latest uh, takeover target this week. Um, we mentioned a couple previously, but it, it seems a, a combination of all these seems unusual. It does. The vast majority of takeover deals um, are presented to the market as a done deal. So the, the respective boards come together, and they negotiate an agreement, and they say to the market, here it is, with uh, so it's, you know, a friendly merger um, or takeover arrangement. So against that long-term trend, I'm intrigued that we've got all these hostile deals underway or proposed. So as you say, uh, Wynn Resorts was having discussions with Crown for a $10 billion takeover, um, but then they pulled it as yeah, soon as the deal got leaked. It was pretty funny. Read the morning papers, you're reading about this deal, and on the radio they're saying it's been pulled. So. I know. <laughs> and, look, and often the leak is a, is a tactical ploy to yeah. try and lock in the bidder. Well, yeah. it, it, if that was the plan, it backfired spectacularly in this case. Um, another one, uh, you know, West Farmers has made a takeover bid for Linus Corporation, yeah. the rare earth producer. Now, that one's become... I would say extremely hostile. Mm. Um, Linus has become uh, is fiercely defending its independence, and in fact, West Farmers has come under some real heat because of their contact with the Malaysian government. 
which is where Linus processes their materials. Um, there's a lot of environmental and political sensitivity around this in Malaysia. And the, the charge, I suppose, was that Rob Scott and the team at West Farmers were sort of getting in with the Malaysian government uh, to try and negotiate something. Um, now, they insist that they've been above board and just following normal procedure. Um, but, you know, once again, a very hostile deal. A third example, AP Eagers, they're the Brisbane automotive company. Mm. Uh, they've made a bid for Automotive Holdings Group yeah. out of Perth. Which we mentioned last week. We yeah. did. And then a fourth one, um, Gina Reinhardt's company, Hancock Prospecting. Yeah. They're trying to take over a company called Riversdale Resources, mm-hmm. um, unlisted. Um, they've got a big coal project in uh, Canada. Um, Hancock already has 20%. And they had an agreement with most of the directors from Riversdale. So they've already locked in about 35%. But the big shareholder that they've got to get over the line is another Perth group, Resource Capital Funds, yeah, right. um, headed up by James McClements. Um, they're not playing ball. They're saying, no, nope, this is um, opportunistic, um, undervalues the assets, etc." So... Mm-hmm. Um, in a sense, I, I, this sort of arose out of my research on on all the the deals that we track through our BNIQ database, yeah. um, and looking at all the work that the law firms are doing, um, advising on on takeover deals, keeping very busy. Hostile uh, takeovers are bread and butter, aren't they? I know. Mark, I'm just wondering that Riversdale one's really interesting because that's been going on for quite a while behind the scenes, and. Um, you know, it's. I guess why it even gets public at all, I'm not really sure, because it's, it's. You know, then neither company involved are public companies, right? And and resource capital funds is okay. It's a fund manager, but it's. You know, it doesn't have to reveal the inner workings of its investments. Um, now, Riversdale, remind me that Riversdale won, in effect, the guys behind this Riversdale had a coal project in Mozambique from recollection. They sold it for a three or four billion, quite a number. Four billion, right, yeah, in the in the uh, well, in the peak of the boom, I guess we'd say, to Rio Tinto. Uh, and if I recall rightly, within a year or some very short t- time like that, Rio Tinto had effectively written off that asset. Uh, because they couldn't get the coal out because they didn't have the access rights and, and, and yes. such that they needed. Yes. So the, the the people behind that have gone on subsequently and started Riversdale Two, if I'm right, and have got this a similar coal project in Canada. So they're they're obviously a fascinating group of private people who know mm. what they're doing. Uh, I'm just intrigued by that whole backstory on this one. So yeah, no, yeah. look that that Riversdale Mark One was one of the uh, amazing deals from the last boom time, um, but also you know intriguing too that coal. Still a lot of value in coal, despite all the politics around it and all the predictions about the death of coal. Well, that's (laughs) a long way off yet. Um, And uh, and, obviously someone like Gina Reinhart isn't phased by the... uh, that sort of discussion in the public domain. No. She, she sees long-term value. Back to the election and how Adani is featuring and, uh, yes. you know, the contest between, you know, the, the, the pro-development north in Queensland versus the anti-development, you know, inner suburbs of Melbourne, which is effectively what that story is about. Um, well, thanks, Mark. That's pretty, you know, and, and you mentioned there the BNIQ uh, search engine, lots of deals, lots and lots of deals in there. Um, now, uh, Mark, 
Dick Lester is one of the state's great entrepreneurs. His family company has long funded one of the nation's richest art prizes, the Black Swan Prize for Portraiture. Um, they've decided to change the name to reflect its patronage. Well, and also to avoid confusion. Okay. A, a well-known theatre company Fair with enough. the same name, and they regularly got confused. Um, the punters out there couldn't distinguish or clearly distinguish the two. So the Black Swan Prize for Portraiture will in future be known as the Lester Prize to uh, honour Dick Lester for his long-term support. I mean, this is $50,000 a year. So yeah. very substantial prize for artists. Um, but a great story behind this as well. It got set up back in 2007 uh, when an artist named Tina Wilson uh, made an appointment to go and see Dick Lester. Uh, and, uh, uh, Dick had a, a well-known love of, of art and, uh, and Tina knew this. So she sat down with him and pitched this idea. And a really interesting lesson for anybody else out there in this sort of um, arts or not-for-profit world she didn't just have this um, dream, um, and it wasn't just saying, you're a rich person, back me. She went in there with a business case. She went in there with a budget and went in there with a clear vision about what this prize could become. Mm. And he said they were the things that got it over the line. And so based on that, Dick was prepared to back Tina, who spent the next decade or so running the competition. Um, she's now gone back to um, you know, being an artist herself. Um, so uh, obviously did her legwork before she went in and made her pitch. Yeah. So uh, other people listen to that and you know, <laughs> learn from that experience. She had a good mentor somewhere, I suspect. Yes. Um, so anyway, um, the Lester Prize, and it continues under its new name. Um, the organisation is chaired by John Langelant, so um, you yeah. know, a good quality bunch of people around it. And, uh, and we should remind listeners, I think, uh, you know, Dick Lester, best known, I think, for uh, establishing Growth Equities Mutual, if I'm right. Uh, you know, that, that was in the 80s, and he effectively started the kind of uh, property unit trust business that today is quite a substantial part of the, uh, the investment, uh, you know, structure of Australia. Um, and he was ahead of the game. Um, you know, basically, by people, you know, you and I could invest in major commercial property, which prior to that had been something that was really limited to those with large amounts of money or you know, bigger, less specific fund managers. Um, so, quite a pioneer in the Australian landscape. Mm. And and look, and the business continues, albeit in a different form. Um, so Dick's still chairman of the family company, but he's got his three sons in there with him, um, doing a lot of property investing and uh, offering sort of syndication opportunities for other investors who want to participate. Yeah, no, it's a great story. Uh, our special report this week is on the legal profession, and I'm going to, you know, compliment you, Mark, on the front cover of the newspaper. You've got uh, Kylie Groves there, a, a legal partner at Hall & Wilcox. Uh, very bright cover. Um now, Mark, you've written this feature, so what can you tell us? Look, probably two broad themes that I've explored here, um, or two different aspects. One, I sat down with Wayne Martin, the former Chief Justice, and had a really interesting talk to him about his life post being a judge. It was around July last year that he finished up. So his day job now is as a mediator and arbitrator, um, plus he's taken on about five different board roles. And... 
he was reflecting on the kind of board positions that he's taken because he said that life on the bench, you know, what you see is people in trouble or people fighting with each other or in, in dispute. So you sort of see the, if you like, the negative side of society. Mm. So he's actually quite enjoyed getting out and working with lots of organisations doing some really positive things, like the Perkins Institute yep. with their medical research. Yeah, I was at an event at the weekend and he spoke, uh, you know, at, at the Harry Perkins Institute. Yeah, he's a fabulous backer of it. Yeah. yeah. The other theme about his board roles, and this is organisations like um, the Parkerville um, Centre and um, the Eon Foundation, focused on helping Indigenous people or people who are victims of child abuse. And he said that you know when he was a young judge and he'd see people coming up before him in court and they're up on a robbery charge or a drugs charge and the counsel would explain that this person was a victim of child abuse or something of that kind. And Wayne admitted that as a young judge, he thought, what's that got to do with anything? But then as the years wore on and he realised the impact of those sorts of social issues on the judicial system. So now he's getting involved in helping some of these organisations that are, that are trying to make a difference um, at the ground level. Um, the other thing he talked about with his, with his new day job, he said he's been pleasantly surprised by the amount of interest in mediation because, um, you know, ironically, he spent a lot of time improving the efficiency of the court system. Um, the management of commercial cases, um, you know, and but we still have cases that run on for an awfully long time, very expensive, take up a lot of management time when there are businesses involved. Um, and he says, look, despite all those improvements, litigation is not for the faint-hearted. No. Um, so he's a big fan of mediation. So you you avoid that sort of formal um, litigious environment, and you work more towards negotiating an outcome. And so he's been pleasantly surprised by the amount of interest that he's seen in that area. On the other side, um, the, the core part of the feature is around looking at who's who in the legal market and, and who's growing their business. Once again, we tap into our BNIQ database where we've been tracking all the major law firms in Perth. There's about 120 law firms on the database and we can see who's growing. You know, the broad context, and I guess it feeds into our earlier discussion, you know, it's a pretty soft market in WA, mm. has been for several years. Um, you know, there are areas of recovery where things are picking up, but most of the law firms say things are pretty quiet. And yet, in that context, you know, we've seen some significant growth. Um, Clayton Utes, they've had some substantial growth over the last couple of years. Uh, Minter Ellison, uh, Norton Rose. So we can actually go through the database and sort of identify which firms are growing. Uh, a couple of the East Coast firms that have expanded to Perth, um, HWL, Ebsworth, and the one you mentioned before, Kylie Grove's firm, Hall & Wilcox. So all sort of finding a niche in the local market. And just quickly, running through some of those ones I mentioned earlier, Clayton Utes stood out because over the past decade, just about every major law firm has either been bought by or merged with or struck an alliance with a big international player. Mm. Clayton Utes was about the only one that said, no, we're going to stay on our own independent. Now we're talking about national law firms here, aren't we? That's right, yes. Yeah. So um, they believe that stood them in good stead. Yeah. Um, they've now got a real point of difference in the Australian market, that they're not aligned with a big international firm. Right. Another really fascinating story of a WA dimension is Minter Ellison. Now back in 2012, 
just about all the partners at Minter Ellison um, aligned themselves with the US firm Squire Patton Boggs. And that decimated Minter Ellison's Perth office. They were left with only four partners. Um, they've since recovered remarkably, now got 17 partners in Perth, about um, 120 people. Um, fourth largest law firm in Perth. Yeah, there you go. So an amazing sort of recovery by Minter Ellison after being just about wiped off the floor. Um, and, uh, so Minter's uh, nationally are, are the same as, a little bit like Clayton Newt, they're just a national local That's right, uh, uh, or, and Australian with, with some Asian presence as well. Right, okay. Um, but in fact, on revenue, they're the largest law firm in the country. Yeah, right, there you go. So you know, having a strong presence in Perth was really important for them. Mm. Um, but they've attracted some good people. Yeah. Um, and then others, Norton Rose Fulbright, they were one of the first international firms to come into this market. They bought the old Deacons practice. Yep. Um, they've invested substantially in WA. They've made about five partner hires, um, lateral hires over the past year, mm. and they're really picking up their practice as well. Yeah. So, you know, some really major shifts in who's who in the industry. And so then the local, the big local firms remain, Lavin and, and, and Jackson, Jackson McDonald. So they're both, both still very both substantial players, yeah. yes. Good to see. Okay, Mark, that sounds fascinating. Look forward to reading all that. Thank you for your time. Uh, join us for breakfast with David Singleton, CEO of Austal. Austal builds the Ferraris of the shipbuilding world, the fastest, lightest, most engineered ships afloat. Since the 1980s, Austal has gone from a startup to the world's largest aluminium shipbuilder and the only non-US company to build ships for the US Navy. At the breakfast, uh, our success and leadership breakfast, uh, David Singleton will discuss world-class technology, big risks that have generated big rewards, the company's 30-year commitment to apprentices and its commitment to women in engineering. Look forward to seeing you there. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Bayer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud. <laughs>